It's midnight, the podcasting hour. DJ Frightful, coming at you from my studio in the basement of the old radio station. And yes, I'm talking to you a few days later than usual. So sorry for the delay, but I had an old, very old, friend come into town. And we got to telling stories. He's sort of a dealer in rare artifacts, and he told me about what happened to a friend of his. Something dreadful and chilling. So I guess you get to hear about it now. Get comfy, for it's PJ's story time again. Carson led him to the study, his green flip-flops clapping on the hardwood floor until they landed on a three-hundred-year-old oriental rug. Even then, those flip-flops made a softer, wetter, popping noise as they pulled away from Garson's feet with each step. The room screamed old money. Brand had been in several like it in his line of work, but this one was special— not because of the elk head over the fireplace or the merlot-colored curtains keeping the sun at bay. Those weren't anything new. The sitting chairs, though. Brand was fairly certain he'd seen them in an old photo taken in Buckingham Palace. And the book collection. He could smell their age, their vintage. He didn't need an inventory. He could ballpark their combined value at roughly half a million dollars. And yet... Garson walked around in neon green flip-flops you could get for nine dollars at a TJ Maxx. Brand followed the man, or rather the sucking sounds of his feet, to a table that had been cleared of all but three objects he'd come to appraise. "'What do you think, Mr. Brand?' Garson asked. Like so many people with Garson's obscene level of affluence, having money wasn't enough any more. He grew bored buying things that were old and priceless. He had to have something to really impress his peers, who were not predisposed to being impressed by anything. The latest trend among Garson's circle was occult objects. Brand stepped in front of the table and chewed his lip. He had to appear equal parts disappointed and irritated just at the sight of the three objects on the table. That's how he operated. A client hired him to appraise something's occult value, its history or appeal for connoisseurs of the supernatural. If there were more than one item on display, Brand always did the same thing. Scoff at the merchandise. Tell the client they're worthless, even, depending on his read of the client, make the client feel foolish for hiring him. Convince the client he'd been had. Then, an ever-so-subtle double-take toward the last object. That's interesting, he would always say, before really scrutinizing the last object. And by the end of his appraisal, he'd walk away with a handsome figure, and the client would believe he owned an ashtray once belonging to Alistair Crowley. 
Garson seemed to grow impatient, or a little concerned that Brand was staring at the objects on the table and not saying anything. He took two short steps to the table, the flip-flops suck-pulling at his feet, and picked up the first object, a finely cut piece of topaz. This crystal, Garson said, belonged to Abdul Alhazred, the so-called Mad Arab who mentored H.P. Lovecraft. Brand stared at the man until he put the crystal back down. He didn't need to call up any fake indignation for Garson. The Mad Arab, he said, was a fictional character. That's what they'd have you believe, Garson said. But this was the actual mock indignation. Brand could see behind Garson's eyes to where the man had fallen for a ridiculous, easily fact-checked lie because he wanted to believe it. "'What else you got?' Brand asked, looking up at the elk head like he had already lost interest in Garson and was about ready to leave. "'This cat statue I obtained in Cairo.' Garson showed him a bust of a cat's head, a rather sinister-looking cat, Brand had to admit, but could see no other quality that would mark it as special. "'I was told,' Garson said, clearing his throat, "'that there might be a special meaning to it, because it looks so... evil.' "'My guess?' The sculptor was a dog person. Brand gave Garson an almost sympathetic look. He'd humiliated the man enough. The next object. Well, the only thing left is this letter opener, Garson said. Brand sucked in air quickly. The final object lay on the table. A letter opener, according to Garson. But it looked more like a steak knife to Brand. A steak knife with a hilt made of gold and ivory ingots. The hilt seemed luminous, but the actual blade... Brand had never seen anything like it. He couldn't even be sure at a glance if it was metal or not. He felt dizzy for a second. Wasn't he supposed to say something at this point? He forgot his line. Something about being intrigued by the last item, only it wasn't a line now. Brand genuinely was captivated by the knife. He leaned in close... The blade was dark, like it had oxidized, but that didn't seem right because it was still perfectly reflective. He could see himself in the blade. And looking closer, he could see writing. Was it Arabic? Or some kind of runes? A combination? Carved into the blade. That blade. It wasn't oxidized, it was just dark, like some kind of black metal. That's interesting, he said and picked up the knife. It felt way too heavy for an object of its size, and yet Brand had no trouble lifting it. In fact, he felt stronger, lighter, like the pull of gravity had lessened around him. The sense of dizziness came to him again. He closed his eyes and imagined himself in a pool, a vast pool of dark water. He floated there. The water covered his lips, his nose, his eyes, his ears— a pressure built up against his ears. It sounded like a jet engine, distant at first, then growing steadily louder. Then another sound, a wet clapping sound, again and again. It was the suck-pulling of cheap flip-flops against sweaty feet. The sound of the engine grew louder, the pressure built in Bran's head. Then another sound, high, piercing, it was the sound of Garson screaming as the knife in Brand's hand came down again and again and again.
One of the maids heard the victim screaming, a uniformed officer was telling the lead detective. Amy Soto listened in while she took photographs of the crime scene. She came down and saw enough of what was happening that she locked herself in one of the other rooms and called the cops. By the time Officer Mills and I arrived, the suspect had gone outside to the back. He was trying to drown himself in the swimming pool. "'Amy, goddammit, watch where you're stepping!' Officer Harrison barked at her. She looked down, instantly dancing back on her tiptoes. She had almost stepped in one of the blood pools on the Oriental rug. "'God!' Harrison groaned loud enough to make it obvious. Amy hated him. He had been trying to get her fired from the forensics lab since last year, right around the time she said no when he asked her out to dinner. He criticized her constantly, wrote her harder than any other technician in SID. Any sign of the murder weapon, the detective asked to no one in particular? Not yet, Harrison said. Aha! She had him now. I found it, Amy said, holding up her camera. Spotted it under that sitting chair while I was taking photos of the room. Harrison glowered at her. The detective didn't notice. Good, was all he said, before leading the uniformed cop out into the foyer. She could hear Harrison's teeth grinding. Got an evidence bag? she asked. He took one out and handed it to her. Amy got down on her knees and reached under the chair. Carefully, methodically, she gripped the hilt of the knife between the latex of her thumb and forefinger. "'Wow, it's really heavy,' she said more to herself than anyone else. Of course, the only other person who heard her was Officer Harrison, who snorted. "'Maybe to you.' She held the murder weapon up to slide it into the evidence bag, but stopped. In all her life, Amy Soto had never seen a knife like this. How bizarre it looked, and what strange symbols on the blade. "'What the hell are you doing?' Harrison shouted. "'Don't hold it like that!' Amy looked at him, confused, then looked back at the knife. She was holding it firmly in her hand, gripping the hilt tightly, smudging whatever fingerprints might have been on it. Harrison rushed over to her. "'You stupid bitch! You're contaminating evidence! They didn't teach you how to bag a weapon on your first day?' God, she hated him. He was always on her case. Now he was shouting at her like she was some rookie in training wheels. She closed her eyes, and for a moment she was on the beach, wading into the warm, dark surf. She felt so light. She felt like floating. Somewhere that sounded far away, Harrison was shaking her, telling her to give him the knife. She did. She gave it to him over and over and over. And when the detective and Officer Mills came running into the room, she didn't want to listen to them anymore. All she wanted was to go swimming in the ocean. Welcome back to Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly, joined once more by one of my semi-permanent co-hosts, Mr. Paul Hicks. Welcome back, Paul. It's semi-great to be here, Mike. (laughs) 
Uh, first things first, I don't know what my president said to your prime minister, but on behalf of the sober part of America, I am sorry. Hopefully the night force can heal this great rift between our two countries. <laughs> there is no rift between our two countries, as I understand it. Uh, we're not big fans of our prime minister. Uh, yeah, he's a bit of a spineless dweeb. Um, you know, I would personally really like him to just you know treat these refugees who come to our country properly uh, and not illegally detain them offshore and then try to ship them off to other countries. So, uh, you know, they deserve each other. I hope they get locked in a lift together and eat each other. <laughs> I was going to say, I have no idea what that's like, but... Uh... <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of Night Force, sort of, that's what Paul and I are going to talk about on this episode. If you go back to the glory days of December 2016, back on episode 4 of this podcast, we discussed the 16-page Night Force preview that served as a, well, as a preview. Uh, we met the four main characters that would star in the first Night Force story arc, and we talked a little bit about writer Marv Wolfman's approach to the series that he described as a supernatural mission impossible. This time, we're covering Night Force issues one through four, which, believe it or not, is only the first half of the first story arc. I know it sounds quaint, but Wolfman had this idea of writing long-form stories, basically serialized graphic novels, decades before Marvel and DC began to structure their story arcs to best fit the trade paperback. And we can talk more about the structure of the format when we get to the issues. But first, Paul, let's remind our listeners of who exactly is in this Night Force, this sort of non-team team. Who are the characters that we met in the preview, and what do we know about them? Uh, let's start with the Baron. All right, Baron Winters. What do we know about him? Uh, he is a, a mystical man, uh, very long-lived, we suspect. Um, he lives in Wintergate Mansion, which seems to be uh, some sort of – one of those mystical properties in the DC <laughs> units that's uh, put in the category with the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets, perhaps. It's, yep. uh, it is in Georgetown, which is what part of Washington, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, suburb, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people wander in and they open doors and they end up in different parts of history. And uh, it's alluded to in the preview, but – but uh, the Baron cannot leave the house mm -hmm. in the modern day, but he can go into the past through different doors. He also so has a, a signature pet that he that accompanies him, a, a big cat. It's I, I don't know if it's ever said explicitly. I think it might be a cheetah, I, but I think it's a leopard. I think it's a cheetah. I think Do it you? is mentioned as a cheetah, yeah, okay. in the text. I didn't remember if it was said. It might have been in that article that you sent. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And the leopard, or the cheetah is named Merlin, uh, and we'll kind of talk about why that is in on this episode. Uh, then we have Jack Gold who is a struggling journalist, and by struggling I mean he has failed and been fired from several more reputable, more sort of legitimate, non-fake news, news agencies. Uh, <laughs> and by the time we meet him, he is basically writing for a kind of scandal rag, gossip column type of uh, periodical that you would find in the supermarket. Yeah, he's, he's definitely on the way down. Yeah. He is divorced, might have a drinking problem, uh, definitely has issues controlling his uh, his anger and his temperament when he's around people with sort of official titles. Uh, yeah, that's Jack. Then who else? We have Donovan Kane, who is a parapsychologist, sort of like the Ghostbusters, except not as funny. Um, and we'll, we'll find out more about him, but what we have seen briefly is that he seems to be conducting some sort of experiment with his students that involves naked ritual seances to summon the devil, which... Yeah, with well, semi-success. Yeah. Where was that class when I was in school? <laughs> 
and uh, our fourth character is Vanessa Van Helsing, quite a famous name. Uh, and she is young. She is not quite 21 years old and currently committed to the Potomac Psychiatric Hospital. And she seems to be having a bit of a, a crisis uh, with her... Trying to... Psychic sensibilities or sensitivities? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she seems to be picking up on some psychic phenomena that causes her to have these seizures and fits. But her doctor, who is a little bit more skeptical, thinks she just might be kind of dangerously crazy. Mm. Any other notes on those four main characters? Well, the uh, the Baron is the one who uh, manipulates them yes. and uh, assembles them to do a mission, I guess. Is, uh, so that's where the sort of Mission Impossible comparison comes in because he is the one pulling the strings and uh, getting everyone in place. And uh, a lot of them are unaware that they're actually going to play a role like that. Yeah, despite the the title, Night Force sounds like a, a you know a, a locked and like secure type of group or a unit. We will see that that is not what this is. This is very much an unofficial non-team group of uh, ensemble players. Night Force, it sounds like they've got vehicles with logos on the doors. <laughs> Just because G.I. Joe did that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, well, those are your characters. Uh, maybe you can call them the heroes of Night Force, but maybe you won't think so about an hour from now. Anyway, uh, time for a quick promo break, but when we return, Night Force issue one. A crippled scientist with a short temper and a chair built for action. The bandaged man and woman and the sentient energy that connects them even as it tears them apart. A woman with multiple personalities and a different superpower for each one. A redneck who can see the future, but only 60 seconds at a time. The street that travels the world with fabulous style. The actress trying not to play the role of a freak. Hot hands. A boy who swims, flies, crawls or runs like a beast. Eight-faced girl who has imaginary friends with the capacity for unimaginable terror. The fifth richest man in the world and the mind games he plays. An Indian woman who controls fire and ice, but never the team she leads. Man who is a robot. We doubt there are stranger things than the heroes of the Doom Patrol, but join us on Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and hear for yourself. The whole first arc of Night Force was meant to be a big seven-issue story called The Summoning. It ended up being a little bit more than seven issues, but we will get into that on a future episode. The first chapter is called Genesis, and it appeared in Night Force issue one, which had an August 1982 cover date. The on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was May 20th that year. The book cost 60 cents and had a cover by Gene Colan and Dick Giordano. The cover shows Baron Winter holding a plate or saucer thing with a pentagram etched on its surface. Standing on the plate, dwarfed by the Baron, are the three other characters we've met. In the center of the pentagram, seemingly emerging from fire, is Vanessa Van Helsing. Donovan is to her left, sort of cautiously reaching toward her. And Jack Gold is on the other side, looking like he doesn't know what is going on. There is smoke all around them, and around the Baron too. And around the image is a solid white border, and we get some text blurbs on either side. The first says, first issue spectacular. And the second says, together again, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. Paul, what do you think of the cover of Night Force issue one? It looks good from a bit of a distance. (laughs) (laughs) 
but uh, the closer you get to it, the, more, it, the weirder it looks and the more you start to think about it. So uh, the Baron, well, he's holding this plate and in front of it is like, I don't know, images of his night force that he's assembling. But there are lines across the Baron like he's on a black and white TV set. Yeah. Or something. There's some sort of strobing on his image that isn't on the um, the characters. So, And his hands are actually in the foreground of the picture, but the effect makes it look like they should sit behind. Yes. Because uh, the people on the plate are much more vivid uh, than he is. And his hands sit in front. Um then you look at the top half of him and it looks like it's in a, another dimension slightly further back again. And he's almost like a negative image because he has a white sort of almost like a domino mask around his eyes. So his eyes are sort of inversely shaded somehow. Yes. Just, you know, I'm not quite – I don't understand it. But from a distance, it looks really um, captivating. And it's only one of those images of all the covers. I think this is one of the most um, iconic and having the Baron sit inside this box and his head sort of just emerging from the frame slightly, it certainly works for the series, but it's just a little bit odd when you start thinking about it. What do, what do you think? I had the exact same notes. I thought the composition, I don't know if it should make sense. Like, it seems like he should be in focus. We should see him and the images that he's like holding up of the other three characters, they should look a little bit more hologram-like, but it's reversed which yeah. I don't understand how that makes sense. And you're and you're right. Like because he is both in front of them and behind them because of his hands. Like why does he have this sort of distorted effect? The other thing that just feels weird about this is all of the white on the cover. Yeah, which, which is striking. It kind of sets itself out. But given the kind of nature of this story and this series, Night Force, it's about dark and supernatural. It's a ghost, like a, like a horror story. It's like you wouldn't think there would be so much white on the cover that's something that carries through this entire first arc is i feel like uh the colorist is sort of at war with the story somewhat or not yes you know hasn't really got a handle on what they want to do with the colors uh-huh. or being challenged by the way the art is trying to be presented or you know it doesn't seem like the technology is quite there for what they're trying to do throughout the comic i, I mean i guess like thematically i kind of understand like that the three characters should be the ones in focus because they're the active participants where as the Baron is sort of like in kind of like the mover and the shaker, the puppeteer, but it's still a little bit. Mm. He could be moving and shaking the plate that they're all standing on. All right. The... <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> be kind of a dick move, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, you ready to get into the story? I am, yes. All right. The Summoning Chapter 1 Genesis is written and edited by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Bob Smith, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Michelle Wolfman. We open with two men, Trevor and Carrie, driving across the Arlington Memorial Bridge to Washington, D.C. Whatever job they're being called to do makes them uncomfortable, but soon that doesn't matter. Out of the darkness, a small helicopter hovers above their car. Machine gun fire erupts from the helicopter, killing both men and sending the car over the side of the bridge and into the Potomac River. At the nearby Potomac Psychiatric Hospital, Vanessa Van Helsing has a terrible vision while locked in her padded room. A demonic face in the wall of magenta fire tells Vanessa she will be part of them. Vanessa shuts her eyes and screams, wondering why must she be tortured by these visions. 
Jack Gold goes to Baron Winters' house in Georgetown to do a story for his editor. He meets Winters and Winters' pet cheetah, Merlin, who the Baron says was a gift from the actual Merlin of Arthurian legend. Jack and Winters argue a bit over what Winters claims of his own history versus what Jack has been able to dig up. When the Baron goes to answer his phone, Jack goes to get some fresh air from the cloister. He opens the back door, thinking he'll step out into a garden, but instead walks out into a Parisian street in the 1800s. He confronts Baron Winters about it, but when he looks back outside, he sees only the garden. Unwilling to believe in magic and refusing to take part in Winters' charade, Jack leaves. He drives back to his motel where he gets a call from his ex-wife. She reminds him that his alimony check is due, and so, in need of money, Jack returns to Winters' house to get his story. Elsewhere, Donovan Kane performs another ritual. His students surround him, naked, dancing, gyrating, succumbing to hedonistic lusts. Whatever they're doing, it seems to have some effect. On a busy street in Georgetown, a wave of evil energy, or maybe fire, with the visage of a demon bursts from the sewers and terrorizes the people nearby. A police officer tries to shoot the demonic energy wave and is killed for trying. At the Potomac Hospital, a group of orderlies try to sedate Vanessa. She fights them off and escapes from her cell. She runs down the hall, but she's stopped by a flood of demonic energy that overwhelms her like a wall of blood. Back at Georgetown University, the psychic energy created by Donovan's ritual almost threatens to incinerate everyone there. Donovan stops the ritual and tells his students to put out the fires. One of the people involved in the ritual seems to be his lover, or wife at least. Dr. Rabin comes to see Vanessa. The orderlies found her unconscious and unharmed, yet covered in blood, and this isn't the first time. Dr. Rabin hates consulting with Baron Winters on Vanessa's case, but Winters has had luck treating her in the past. She calls Winters, who is still talking to Jack Gold, but Winters recommends Rabin talk to Professor Donovan Kane about Vanessa's condition. Donovan, meanwhile, is talking to his students after the failed ritual. We find out his experiments, which are funded by the Pentagon, are an attempt to tap into the energy source of pure evil. Donovan thinks that the evil force can be controlled and therefore eliminated, though one of the students questions if the Pentagon might not be funding their research so they can weaponize the energy source. After class, Donovan and his lover plan to spend an evening alone together when they're approached in the parking lot by special agents Carrie and Trevor, the two guys we saw murdered at the beginning of this issue. They tell Donovan that his work has attracted the attention of foreign interests, so they've been assigned to bodyguard him. This exchange is witnessed by one of Donovan's students, Mary, who calls in to report to her secret master. Jack goes to see Vanessa at the hospital. Dr. Rabin isn't thrilled about letting anyone from Baron Winters come to meet with Vanessa, but Jack wins her over by sharing her feelings on the veracity of Winters' occult claims. Jack speaks to Vanessa briefly. She begs him to help her get out of the hospital. Then, Donovan Kane arrives with a release for Vanessa so he can study her at his lab. Jack follows Donovan and Vanessa back to the college to monitor the experiment. Donovan suspects that Vanessa is a psychic magnet for evil energy, and that her visions and attacks occur whenever he conducted a ritual experiment. Hopefully, this test will prove she's not crazy, and possibly further his research. Eighteen minutes later, a cloud of evil energy escapes from the sewers and attacks a motorcyclist. Back at his house, Baron Winters tells Merlin that all of the members of his night force are together in place. What comes next is up to fate, and they shall see what happens. All right, what did you think of issue one? 
Ah, it's a very uh, scene-setting story. I like it has a title page, which sort of, um, mm-hmm. it's got like uh, scenes from upcoming issues sort yeah. of all collaged together. Yeah, it's got the, the Baron there. There's the, his foe, who's the, you know, shrouded in darkness. We can't see his face, but he likes to sit in a, a fairly ornate armchair. And we see the, the three main characters sort of striding through the snow, mm-hmm. which is, uh, there's no snow in this comic, so that's interesting. Um it's very spy stuff. Like the, it reminds me of 1960s James Bond films. The way the the helicopter comes and shoots down the the two agents on the bridge. Yeah, yeah. But some good sound effects there with spa da 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 and spinning as the car spins off the road. Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they go into the drink, um, but it jumps around. So we get uh, Vanessa at the hospital, and this is where the first appearance of the colouring problem. So uh, how would you describe the art? So basically, the demonic visions that appear are like this sort of like um, two tone surprint. Yeah, that is exactly sort of what it looks like. It's it's this. It, it it's not penciled and inked. It's like a, a but it's weird. It's like a sort of pinkish or magenta surprint on a kind of purple or lavender-shaped panel or background. So it's really kind of hard to see. And, like, when you, I mean, these these haven't been digitally retouched or anything. These are, you know, 30, 35-year-old yeah. comics. So it can be hard to see exactly what you're looking at. And I like the effect that they're trying to do, whether this is mostly Gene Colan or if it has to do with the, the colorist. I like what they're going for. Because it definitely sets it apart, and you can tell that it's not a physical presence. It's not in the room with her. It is something that she's either uh, hallucinating or it's on another kind of plane of existence. I like what they're trying, but it's just hard to see. Yeah, and we're looking at page five. There's like a ghost image of Vanessa in front of Vanessa. It's quite strange. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I never, I didn't even actually notice that, but that almost looks like it could have been a printing mistake. Well, it's like a, it's shrunk down slightly further, and it's done in the same sort of surprint color, but it, uh, I think they had two images, and they must have overlaid the entire image instead of some of it, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe it just didn't work the way it was, and they needed to make it smaller. I don't, I don't know. Uh, getting back, just really quick, I did have a note, like on the internet, Introduction when we've got these two guys driving across the bridge and all of a sudden, like, you're right, like it is like a James Bond mini helicopter just shoots them into the river. I, I do like this opening sequence on page two of them driving across the bridge. It seems so kind of mundane, but because of Colin's art, it, there is this atmospheric quality to it. For some reason, it reminds me of the opening of Ghostbusters, um, which is just a shot of a line outside of a library in New York City. But yeah. it gives something like that, this kind of ominous and spooky feeling. Uh, and I got that from this intro. Like, even though we don't see anything supernatural in this, I kind of felt that vibe. There's some beautiful effect, too, with the way uh, Gene Colan draws the headlights cutting through the, mm-hmm. the light in front of the car. And and everyone's sort of always lit interestingly, like, the you know, the cheekbones are shadowed. And, yeah. And that's one thing that struck me throughout this comic is look at the clothing on everyone. It's all sort of <laughs> draped and everyone seems to have uh, their jacket sort of slightly – like there's an extra inch under everything. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting effect because, I mean, you don't really notice how most artists tackle clothing, but he really has a, a style. Yeah, he does. So, 
he thinks about the light on the clothing and the fabric and everything, and you can see it all throughout. And I, I said it before, too, that Cullen might be my favorite comic book artist of all time. I, his work on the series isn't the best of his, of his work, but I really like it. And sometimes he's more softer around the edges, but I think that still gives it a tone and a feel and an atmosphere. Uh, and you're right, just some of the, the details that he puts into just the, the clothing is more, gives more expressiveness and more character to the characters. Yeah. On page nine, which is where Jack opens the door and from the mansion and goes outside and sees <laughs> Paris, I love that the, the old woman there is like, you know, we've got the Eiffel Tower in the background, we've got an old street, a gas street lamp, we've yep. got, uh, you know, an old chateau and a cart. <laughs> I love that she's carrying baguettes and she <laughs> looks like a, a bucket of turnips as well. <laughs> I know, I love that too. It's just, uh, and and his reaction, and uh, yeah, it's perfect. It's it's an interesting thing that keeps coming back in the series is this door that seems to lead to another time, another place, uh, and everybody's reaction. Yeah, and every time it happens, Baron Winters is like, "What? No, no, nothing's weird happening." Like he really dicks people around every time. Um, we get to Donovan Kane. Performing one of his rituals, which gives us more naked people gyrating and, and the uh, the shadows and the inking covering up their um, grown-up parts. Donovan Kane is a, a strange character in this story, and it gets stranger as we go on. Yeah. But um, he just seems really oblivious to his <laughs> responsibilities in all this. I know, and I kind of we will talk about him in a, a little bit because we find out a lot more about him in the next issue, and sort of we get some more exposition about what he's actually doing. But I would have liked a little bit earlier some in this issue some explanation of exactly what this ritual is supposed to be doing and what effect. Like I, I don't know if Wolfman is basing this on any sort of satanic cult activity that he might have researched, or if he's just making this up. But it seems, I was going to just say strange, and I don't want that to sound like a judgment against uh, any particular belief set, but it's, uh, it, it, we don't know what they're trying to accomplish. So mm. people dancing around naked in what is supposed to be a clinical research capacity just seems a little bit odd. And stuff keeps it like it's not like it, there's no reaction. Like there is, you know, flames and things bursting, and right. you know, there's obviously some sort of physical effect in the room from what they're doing. But every single time, it's like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, is that what you wanted to happen, or isn't it? Because yes, you definitely achieved some kind of psychic or paranormal phenomena, but you didn't yeah. want the building to burn down, so. And we're seeing the effect of what he's doing. Like Vanessa is, you know, mm -hmm. jumping out of her skin while this is happening. And there's also, you know, things bursting out of manhole covers in another very Ghostbusters reminiscent right. scene. Right. Yeah. We get these sort of things. And again, this is it's an issue of the art. And maybe it's part of it is the text and part of it is the uh, the coloring. But these things bursting out of the sewers like uh, is this supposed to be fire it looks like fire it's colored like fire but i don't think it's supposed to be fire that way it's like this wave of energy that is terrorizing people and we don't see it actually killing anybody but we're told that it does yes how does this energy work like there's just a little bit that we're not being given um and yeah i don't know yeah, but it changes color. So it goes from sort of uh, yellow and red in the street to sort of really 
pink. That's <laughs> right. Like, it looks very much like the Blob remake in, <laughs> in Vanessa's yeah, when, it, when it comes out with the, yeah, when it comes out of the elevator door, like Blood from the Shining or something. When it, uh... Yeah. But, uh, yeah, everyone's fairly nonplussed by this. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, there's a character that I just described uh, in my notes because we don't know who she is yet as Donovan Kane's lover. Uh, we will find out in the next issue that she is actually his wife, um, Marianne, and she has uh, quite a pivotal role in the next issue. It's very sort of matter-of-fact, like not... Um, he doesn't quite hang a lantern on it, but we saw these two guys be killed in the f- opening pages, and then all of a sudden, it seems like they're back, or they're people with their same names, Carrie and Trevor, who come basically say, yeah, we're from the government, we're here to protect you. So, suspicious? <laughs> yes, and also, um, Donovan Kane has a mole in his staff, which is uh, Mary McDonald. Yep. Um, but yeah, she's a redhead, so instantly <laughs> suspicious. Um, yeah, but she is obviously reporting on what's going on to the shadowy figure who we saw in the preview and we saw on the title page. Uh, the shadowy figure, shadowy figure in a suit in a chair, who talks about his masters because they do not condone failure. When we get to when all the characters sort of convene on uh, at the cell for Vanessa, when we see Jack is there and Donovan is there, I love Donovan's outfit. First of all, for for those of you listening, if you don't know, he's a black man with a very thin mustache, sort of like a Lando Calrissian, Billy D. Williams mustache. He's got two gold hoop earrings. He's wearing a green turtleneck sweater, and over that, a red or purplish kind of checkered jacket. Yeah. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's uh, really rocking. Uh, He seems like such a player. (laughs) He does. Whereas Jack always looks like, you know, he just fell out of a garbage dump. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. He's got like the frumpy sort of John Constantine look of like the, the raincoat and he's got kind of like a broken nose. and uh, Yeah. Jack seems Collar's to have... Collar's always sticking out. Yeah. Jack seems to have brown hair in this issue. Uh, in other issues subsequently, he might have brown hair or red hair, depending. But, I mean, what what is up with this psychiatric hospital that a scientist and a reporter can pop in and visit a patient and the scientist can borrow her with some, the right bit of paper for his experiment? Uh, okay. We needed health care reform back in the 80s. We still do. <laughs> so that's, um, it's, it's okay. I'm a parapsychologist. <laughs> you know, despite having a 16-page preview, this is still a first issue. It is a lot of setup. It is a lot of getting... Uh, people kind of in place and uh, we will see things kind of pick up after this but overall it was enjoyable i it definitely it set the scene there's a lot of mystery going on and when i read this i wanted to know more about it um who just from this first issue who did you think was supposed to be like who who did you find yourself rooting for did you did you find yourself relating to one character more than the other did you like characters more than the others well, Donovan's very cool, so I don't relate to him at all. <laughs> um, Jack seems to be your standard leading man, mm-hmm. like you know, and uh, yeah, the white action hero who is the star of everything. He seems to be you know the one driving things forward. But I don't really feel for any of the characters yet. Like I don't particularly like any of them yet because I don't really know them. Like the more you hear about Jack, the more he seems like a bit of a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do like the Baron because he just seems very cool and calm and slightly detached. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's 
at the end where he's going, you know, everyone's in place. I've pulled all the strings. And then he picks up a dandelion. He says, <laughs> now the rest is up to fate. And then he blows all the, the seeds off. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he's just, he's just wandering around chatting to his uh, cheetah. And, yeah, it, it's interesting. But <laughs> yeah. you don't get enough yet at this point. But, yeah. I mean, it, it looks great. It's full of moody shadows. Um I mean, I'm a little bit worried that Vanessa looks like she's going to be tied down to a pentagram floor <laughs> with electrodes put on her. But it's okay. It's it's under control. Don't worry. <laughs> That's right. These are scientists. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Like, I, I instantly, I thought Donovan looked cool. He felt like a cool character. But it definitely seemed like they were, like, Mar- Wolfman was writing for Jack. Like, he wanted us to at least, like, focus in on Jack, even though he keeps throwing up these things. And we'll see more of that, that we really shouldn't like Jack. No. And that was that was part of his intention, like, when, when Wolfman, and he kind of has this essay that goes throughout the first couple of issues where he's like, you know, these are meant to be sort of realistic characters that have tons of flaws. And you want them to succeed, but you might not want to hang out with them because yeah. of their character character flaws. Uh, All right, ready to move on to issue two? I am. All right. Night Force issue two is cover dated September 1982 with an on-sale date of June 17th. Again, Colin and Giordano provided the cover, which shows Vanessa Van Helsing, as Paul suggested, in the center of a pentagram circle, with Jack and Donovan Kane reacting in horror as a misty demonic entity lifts Donovan's wife, Marianne, into the air. Thoughts on this cover? Uh, the colouring effect on the demon thing is more effective on this paper or something. Mm. Um, it just looks more vivid and you can tell much more clearly what it is. And it's still in the sort of serpent style. Um, but some nice snarling teeth and animalistic. It looks kind of like a bat monster, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Vanessa is <laughs> lying there in some sort of gown, barefoot, um, yeah, it doesn't look like it's under control, but it's quite an effective <laughs> cover. But it looks like, you know, everything is gone haywire on it. Right, right. And Vanessa has this smoke coming out of her mouth and near her fingertips, too. Um, like there's one of the uh, the students, you can just see their foot as they get the hell out of there <laughs> on the side. Yeah, from time to time it feels like Wolfman and Colin, either they weren't on the same page or they were playing it kind of fast and loose when it comes to how the energy is manifest around these characters. Because it's like, yeah, is this stuff like coming, like pooling out of Vanessa or something? Like does she have this inside of her? With her legs kind of like spread out and barefoot, and like just she's just wearing this like sort of white gown. I, I it looks like she could have been like pregnant or something. I don't know. There, does, yeah. it, it almost looks like she's got a baby bump or something. That's like, yeah. where, where's the stirrups? This is like the whole worst kind of delivery. <laughs> and it's reminiscent of uh, sort of Linda Blair mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Vanessa isn't like a, a supermodel or anything. She's not a super attractive. You know, she's drawn like a regular redheaded girl. Right. You know, not super slim, not, you know, you know, just regular. Yeah, all right. But uh, I think I prefer the first cover more. I do too, despite all of the things that we said about the, the cover and like kind of weirdness. The first one had this sort of iconic poster shot type of quality. Yeah. And on this one, I think there's something wrong with the angle of the pentagram symbol because it's sort of flat where it should be sort of have a bit of perspective towards the reader. Yeah. But, I mean, that's not a big deal. It makes it more round. <laughs> 
good. All right. The Summoning Chapter 2 is called The Burning Hand and has the same creative team as the first issue, except Adrian Roy colored this one. The story opens with a quote from William Shakespeare's Macbeth, and I'll get back to that later. Donovan Kane and his class at Georgetown perform their satanic summoning ritual, only this time Vanessa Van Helsing is tied down to the pentagram painted on the floor. The ritual, combined with Vanessa's psychic ability, calls forth the images of some hungry demons. Jack Gold waits impatiently in the hallway outside when Donovan's wife, Marianne, arrives with his son, Larry. They are promptly joined by the two federal agents assigned to protect the Canes. One of them tells Jack to get lost, but just then they hear the sound of Vanessa screaming in the other room. Jack is too quick for the agents and runs into the lab. There he sees Vanessa unconscious, Donovan's students scattering in the smoky wisps of the evil spirits they conjured. Eight blocks away from the college, an ordinary night becomes hell on earth as street lamps explode, glass windows shatter, the ground erupts, and the demons attack the innocent pedestrians on the street. Back at Donovan's lab, Jack demands to know what the hell they're doing to poor Vanessa. Donovan explains that the Pentagon has tasked him with tapping into the energy field that we call evil. He tells Jack that Vanessa is more than a key to tapping into this force. She's the gateway to hell. That's the wrong answer for Jack, who takes Vanessa with him in defiance of the court order that released the girl into Donovan's care. The two agents, Carrie and Trevor, aren't sure how to proceed. They tell Mary, the red-headed woman in Donovan's class, to call their boss for advice. Mary calls the mysterious man who sits in the shadows, who tells them not to do anything. He is sure that Jack Gold is no threat to their plan. Meanwhile, at the Arlington Memorial Bridge, a car is dragged out of the water. Inside, the cops identify two federal agents, Carrie and Trevor, who were murdered at the beginning of Issue 1. Elsewhere, Jack has taken Vanessa back to a motel to rest from her ordeal. He has no idea what to do with her, but he wonders if her story might be the key to getting him out of the awful rut his life is in. When she wakes up, she asks if the Baron sent him to rescue her. She tells Jack she's known Baron Winters all her life. Her parents knew him first. She confides two interesting facts about Baron Winters. The first is that he has always looked the same to her. He hasn't seemed to age in 20 years. And the second thing is that he never leaves his house. Grateful for his act of kindness, Vanessa goes to kiss Jack, and he, grateful to be wanted by anyone, kisses her back. Later, Donovan and Marion Kane go to Wintersgate Manor to see Baron Winters. Donovan complains about Jack interrupting the experiment and making off with Vanessa. Baron Winters assures him that Jack does not mean to harm Vanessa, and he probably only took her to the motel he's currently staying at. Donovan doesn't care what Jack intends to do. Vanessa could still come to harm, and that would be the ruin of his experiment. After the Canes leave, Baron Winters confesses to his cheetah Merlin that the players in his night force might not be ready. In another part of town, Detective Short arrives at the Georgetown Street where chaos had ensued earlier that night. The uniformed officers on the scene tell him there is blood all over the place and no glass, like a bomb went off. Donovan drives angrily toward Jack's motel. His wife tries to calm him down to no avail. Something about Jack Gold triggers him. Marianne knows the feeling, but it's their government babysitters that bother her. She says if the agents have to watch everything they do, at least she and Donovan can give them a show. When he arrives at the motel, she pulls her husband toward her for a deep, passionate kiss. The public display of affection is indeed watched by the two agents, who take a moment to check their weapons before they go to work. 
Donovan goes to Jack's motel room. He finds the reporter wearing nothing but a bedsheet and Vanessa coming out of the bathroom. Donovan punches Jack in the face and grabs Vanessa. He and his wife take her back to the car, telling her it's for the best. The two agents watch this from their car, guns drawn, but the one who may or may not be called Carrie, but probably isn't because Carrie is dead, tells the one who is almost certainly not Trevor to wait. They'll take Vanessa back at the college. Jack recovers from the punch. He wants a drink, and he wants to quit this damn story. That's already cost him too much. The phone rings, and when he answers it, Baron Winters tells Jack he cannot quit, that Vanessa is in serious danger. Before the Baron can say any more, the call is cut off. The fake Carrie and Trevor have cut his phone line so he can't warn anyone else. Donovan prepares Vanessa for another ritual experiment. She's afraid, so Marianne agrees to stay and watch over Vanessa. The ritual begins with Vanessa at the center of the pentagram and Donovan and his class doing their naked chant, summoning the devil. The chant and her powers coalesce once more into mist that takes on the shape of a hulking demon. The two agents burst into the lab to take Vanessa away, but one of them is so startled by the demonic shape that he fires his gun. The bullet clips Vanessa's shoulder. The demon reacts as if struck and lashes out. His energy rips through several of Donovan's students, killing them instantly. It begins to slaughter everyone in the room until it reaches out and grabs Marianne Kane. Donovan tries to save his wife, but he is powerless to do anything but watch her die. Outside, Jack Gold pulls up to the college, having been convinced by the Baron that Vanessa needs rescuing again. When he arrives, he sees the agent's car driving off like a bat out of hell. Appropriate word choice, for as Jack enters the lab, he finds only the aftermath of carnage. Donovan Kane appears to be the only one left alive, as he weeps over a mound of ash that used to be his wife. Everyone else is dead, and Vanessa is missing. To be continued in Night Force Issue 3. Hmm. All right. So uh, we start off with a quote by William Shakespeare. Uh, this is actually an Act Two, Scene One quote from Macbeth, and the lines goes, "Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as if to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain?" All right. What did you think of Night Force issue two? Uh, lots of plot progression. Um, yeah. <laughs> Vanessa, uh, she gets passed around a lot this issue. <laughs> she does, yeah. Yeah, so first she's used in a ritual, and we find that Donovan's wife, Marianne, has brought their son Lawrence along to, to the demonic ritual at the lab. Um, he doesn't go inside. They just hang around outside. Uh, so that seems a bit more responsible. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but um, Jack, you know, bursts in when he hears her scream. Um, and <laughs> at what point are they going, okay, we're obviously getting lots of effects here. Um, things are happening. You, <laughs> you know, shall we try and keep control of this or just keep pushing it? And, you know, no one seems to be having these discussions in this context. Yeah, and again, like, there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of oversight over this experiment. And I want to like Donovan. I keep thinking he is my favorite character of the bunch, but I keep coming to the point, like, does he know what he's actually doing? And is he willing to sacrifice Vanessa for this experiment? Like, he doesn't seem to be realizing the danger that he's in, but is he completely ignorant that around town, like, every time they do these experiments, something awful happens? 
again, his culpability, I don't know. I did really, like, over, like, I had a lot of questions, but I did really like this issue. I liked it a lot more than the first issue because, as you said, there was so much more plot progression because we're seeing things happen. I wish Vanessa had more agency. Um, yes. It seems like the only thing she does do is initiate a sex scene with an older man that we don't witness. Um, and it feels like that scene only happens to remind us that Jack, while he might be our so-called hero, is not really a good person. Um, yeah. Because a good person would not sleep with a 19 or 20-year-old girl who was in a mental institution until about six minutes earlier. Yeah. Yeah, it's and he's just rescued her from yeah <laughs> satanic ritual. Right, <laughs> you know the uh, there's a caption below that that's self self aware of this from uh, Wolfen saying, um, I mean she says you're so strong, and then Jack mm-hmm. wonders for a moment, then he knows Vanessa is wrong. He's really rather weak, you know. Okay. So there's that acknowledgement that hey, it, you know, it's not a 70s or 80s movie where you know of course he would sleep with her. It's what happens, okay. you know. <laughs> But, the, you know, there is a moral judgment by the writer on that, so that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and that comes into play later in the series as well. Right, right. And, uh, I mean, I think, you know, maybe some awareness of Jack, too, that there is some, you know, self-loathing and self-destructive behavior. Clearly, this isn't a good thing, but it also doesn't feel out of character for him based on what we know. You know, yeah. he, he seems like the kind of guy who makes bad decisions at the worst possible time. Um, yeah. And, that, and Jack, that is what has led him from a career as a potential, like, you know, award-winning journalist to a guy writing stories about weird occult people in, in the outskirts of Washington. Jack Gold is a bit crap. That's what we would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I got to say, like, I think one of the reasons I liked this one more is because Baron Winters was in it so little – and because like a lot of times like i like i like baron only when he's actually doing something and when he is actually being active when he's just kind of sitting back and like commenting or saying or seems to be subtly manipulating things i kind of get bored with him pretty quickly later on we will see him doing a lot more and and he he becomes more of a real character but at this point i'm kind of like I want to spend time with the other three people more than the Baron. So when he didn't have much to do in this one, I was okay with that. Yeah, but I mean, he when Donovan comes to complain about Jack taking Vanessa, he's, mm-hmm. his solution is uh, give Donovan a drink and wind him up a bit, and then send him off to get Vanessa. So he, you know, he doesn't get his team to work together at all. He basically pits them against each other yeah. for the outcome he wants. Yeah, yeah, which sort of questions like, well, later on he'll he'll kind of wonder, it's like, have have I made some mistakes in assembling this team? And he just gets this judgmental look from his his cat. Um, yeah, I liked where the story ended up because in just a few short pages and a few panels, I really grew to like Marianne. Um, it is interesting that she brought her son to Daddy's work, <laughs> which happens to be a weird ritual uh, Satan seance with naked people. Good, good to keep the kid out in the hallway. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I liked her. I liked their scene in the car together when they're going towards the motel, and she's talking about the agents. And then you know she pulls her husband aside and kisses him in front of them, just to sort of spite them for spying on them. So yep. I missed her when she died. Like you know when she's in this room and you know the the spirits or the demon entity grabs her. That was a good, effective use of horror. 
that yes. that he was trying to create. That we we like this character, and she's the first victim that we really care about. Who is who is hor- murdered in this horrible way? Because we see a lot of people getting killed in this scene. We don't really care about them because we don't know them. But Marianne had a tangible presence. She had a scene with Jack. She had this, she was married to Donovan. So now this changes our main characters, and this does actually create a major moment for the story. Yeah, and there's the emergence in this issue of a bit of police procedural as they find the agent's bodies. So uh, um, so not only have they taken their names, but they also appear to have taken their faces, these two yeah. guys running around. And there's also a policeman who starts investigating all the you know death in the streets that, that's been happening. Right. And Detective uh, Short, his character will play up a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and these two uh, fake agents, they cut the phone lines to the university at a crucial point when everything goes wrong at the end. Mm-hmm. And then they burst in with their guns. And um, the ritual is sort of already out of control when they come in shocked and one of them fires a gun and just clips Vanessa's arm. And then that causes the sort of demon thing to, to lash out. <laughs> but it's a bit unclear. Like, I always thought everything was out of control before that point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but the colouring is a bit more effective on those last few pages with the demon. There's more black around the shapes. Yes, yeah, I think so. Adrian Roy did a better job of of colouring this one. Um, and there's even instances where just like the blood on Jack's lip, like the blood coming out of the corner of his mouth after he's been punched by Donovan on page 18, something like that. I think is just a little bit stronger, a little bit more noticeable. Although this is the issue where his hair starts to go from brown to red. But, I mean, the end of it uh, looks like there's about eight or nine students dead (laughs) (laughs) and and his wife. Uh, It's going to be an awkward day at work tomorrow. (laughs) I mean, the rest of, you know, school might be called off the next day. (laughs) The kids might not have to go to class. Hmm. So... All right, uh, folks, we are going to take another short promotional break, but when we come back, we will talk about Night Force issues three and four. A revolutionary gorilla in a beret as committed to evil as he is to love. A swarm of porcelain that walks like a woman. A dude who looks like Skeletor, offering employment opportunities. An intergalactic fast food chain looking to expand. An overweight alien in a moo commanding a plastic army. An insecure man with a crotch for crime. A brain in a jar with such plans, if only he had a body. An urban soldier who fights a never-ending lonely war on facial hair. A mentally unbalanced French lady with an elastic body. A man with angry eyebrows and the powers of the periodic table. A man who stared at the abyss till nothing made sense. A scientist who can simultaneously be an animal, vegetable and mineral. We, we doubt, doubt there are stranger things than the villains of the Doom Patrol. Join us on Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and hear for yourself. Hi everybody, this is Ryan with a few announcements to make. Some good, some bad, some relating to this episode, some relating to this podcast in general. First, you will not hear Paul Hicks and I review issues 3 and 4 of Night Force on this episode. We recorded our review of all four issues in one session that went about two hours, but for various reasons, it has taken me forever to edit this thing. This episode that you're listening to is already two weeks late. This was supposed to drop on March 6th. Here it is, March 20th, and it's still not done. 
So what I'm doing is splitting the episode in half. That way I don't slip any further behind and also so the episode isn't too long. That means Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Episode 10, will be the second part of this session, with Paul and I reviewing Night Force 3 and 4, and also reading your listener feedback from when we covered the preview in New Teen Titans, which was back on Episode 4, like three and a half months ago. I know, it sucks that you have to wait for it, but you won't have to wait as long as usual. The next episode will come out this Friday, March 24th. Yes, you get two episodes of Midnight this week. I am double shipping. How about that? Okay, now on to the real sad news. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance you follow me on one social media platform or another, or you follow the Fire and Water Podcast Network or various friends of mine. If such is the case, then you heard that Bernie Wrightson passed away on Saturday, March 18th, after a long battle with brain cancer. I talked about how I became a Bernie Wrightson fan recently on a previous episode of this podcast, and how grateful I am that I got the chance to meet him when I did, and even get some work signed by him. It really sucks that he's gone and won't be producing any more of his gorgeous art, but what was really special today was seeing how many people on Facebook and Twitter were posting images of his covers, or his pinups, or black and white prints. So many creators in the comic book field respected him, so many were influenced by him, and everyone talked about how nice he was. And the fans, too. We just can't get over how extraordinarily gifted and unique he was. I mean, that's something truly amazing, is you can tell a Bernie Wrightson image when you see it. No one else drew like him. No one else had his style, his eye, his imagination. As bummed as I am about his passing, though, I can take comfort, and... I hope my listeners find comfort in this as well, in knowing that I will not be putting Wrightson out of sight, out of mind. He did a whole lot of work for DC Horror Comics, so my guests and I will be covering his work often on this show. Ben Avery and I still have eight more issues of Swamp Thing to cover. Martin Gray is eventually going to join me on an episode covering a famous story from Plop. And there's just so much other good stuff to cover. Not just for this podcast, even. Over on Batman Nightcast, Chris Franklin and I will eventually be covering the miniseries Batman the Cult that writes and illustrated. I am really excited for this. So, I mean, any time an artist of exquisite quality dies, the loss is shared not just by the people who knew him, but by those who were touched by his work. And Bernie Wrightson's art touched a lot of people. So a lot of people are sad today. But there is good stuff to look forward to. Like I said, he won't be forgotten on this podcast. And a bit of really cool news, some of Wrightson's work is going to be reprinted later this year. Recently, the website Bleeding Cool published a list of upcoming DC Comics omnibus and trade paperback collections that will be published in 2017. And four, four of those collections pertain to Midnight the Podcasting Hour. So you guys better get to pre-ordering these books to make sure that they come out. Let me tell you what we're expecting in these collections. Oh, crap. Out of time. Ah. Okay. Next episode, I will get to it. You only have to wait a couple of days. Midnight. The podcasting hour is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight. Thank you.